Hello, welcome to Free Will, Science, and Religion. I'm Chandler Klebs, and I'm here with Mitch J. and George Ortega. And I had an interesting idea that was very free will related. Um, and it was actually inspired by what I had been reading related to asexuality. Because I've been reading blogs and website, you know, free FAQs about asexuality. And I w I've been reading like a free PDF book I downloaded from one website. And here's what caught my interest on every, almost every website. Here's how they def define the difference is that they say, you know, like asexuality is a sexual orientation, whereas celibacy is a choice. And what's, what's really bad about it is they just leave it at that. Like, well, one's a choice and one isn't. And it's very, um, it's, it's hard to know precisely what's meant by that. But um, I, I did, um, you know, I did post in a Facebook group about this. And I was getting some very weird comments. People, you know, the usual hatred of anybody who mentions, you know, the lack of free will and lack of choice thing. Um... But here's what I want to get at is that, yes, there is a difference, but it's not that the difference is as simple as um, something called choice. Because choice, I think, when used in that way, tends to, in many mi the minds of many people, makes room for this idea of free will. Like that, well, you are not to blame or credit for having a certain... Uh, sexual orientation, but if you act on on that um, that that desire that you were born with or whatever for whatever that that was caused by, well then you are responsible and we can blame you. And you know you guys get what I'm saying how they do that. So Chandler, by me before we get into this, explain more de um, um, more precisely the difference between asexuality and, and what I guess celibacy. Yeah, and here's because I've read quite a bit on the subject, and basically, asexuality is where people they are just not experiencing sexual attraction. You know, like in the way many people they know that they are sexually attracted to somebody, and and so they identify as you know as heterosexual or or homosexual or bisexual and those kind of things. But asexuals are unique. And that they don't ever feel that about anybody of any gender. And this is very interesting because it is a minority, you know. The statistics I read, you know, they usually say about 1% of the population is this way. But for many of them, they're just like, um, it, it's sort of like a lot of them, I don't know, they're just, just not interested in it. They just Actually, Chandler, it's actually there's a stage of childhood where that happens, you know, like... I think infants are sexual, then, you know, sexuality goes into a dormancy, you know, I don't, I don't know around what age, then it reemerges in adolescence. So actually, we, we all have this, this, you know, period of, of I guess, asexuality, when, where we just don't have sexual drives, orientations, urges, whatever. Yeah, it, here's what's interesting about it, is you know how, for example, to a lot of kids, um, Somebody will mention something related to sex, or they'll, or they'll learn something about it, and to them it's just gross, right? You know, or it's just confusing because 
they don't understand it, it and they're just trying to figure out why well, why would people do this and why is it so important but for a lot of people they hit puberty and then there's all these hormones and then all of a sudden then they feel these urges and desires most of the population does but there are people for whom that just never happens and the difference like between the asexuality like i just explained you know they're just not feeling um the way that most people are but then celibacy um i would say it's more of a a thing like well i don't want to have sex because this or because that for example there are celibate priests for example who well they're straight they do have um, their sexual desires, but because their religion, for example, tells them that they have to be celibate to be priests, and a lot of religions, you know, they promote um, celibacy or abstinence as like this religious ideal that brings them closer to God. It is for that reason that they have one desire that is trumping another desire. Right. So in this case, as in all the cases that we uh, that we that we're interested in that we talk about, the issue is people who have not investigated free will and come to the conclusion that, well, even even before they come to a conclusion, people who have not investigated the idea of free will misunderstand the way the world works. So, in this situation, if we want if we want to accurately describe what we're talking about, the difference between celibacy and asexuality, right? The way we would put it is this. You might desire, you might have sexual desire, but you don't control the fact that you have sexual desire. Or you might be a person who uh, does not have sexual desire. And that's all you can say, right? So you either have these urges or you do not have these urges. But there is no, um, there is no room for any kind of control. So when people are trying to describe this, when people are trying to de define things, which I think is, uh, is one of your main points, Chandler, a lack of understanding about the issue of free will, or the non-existence of free will, rather, um, causes a lot of confusion and is very problematic. Yes, I, I agree there, because I think just, it, it, just by using the word choice, as they often do, they have this idea, well, you could have chosen otherwise, that you could have your own accord chosen otherwise. And that, I mean, I don't know if that's what everyone's thinking, but because we live in a largely free will believing world, that's my guess is that many people think that is, and the fact that people are blaming people um, for that, um, for what they do or what they don't do, um, leads me to think that there is a free will belief based blame system a blame and shame regarding sexuality or even sometimes the lack thereof okay but yeah as Mitch was I think um, explaining basically one you know kind of like presents itself you know sexuality celibacy or not present presents itself as a quote-unquote choice you know even though that choice isn't up to us or may not you know in a certain sense be up to anything um, it does seem like, you know, one one perspective in it is like, you know, we can decide to be sexual or not. Whereas like, you know, the asexuality, we, the, the person doesn't experience that decision. Like, for example, I think breathing, breathing, I, th I think is a good analogy. Like 
we don't, I don't think, get to decide whether we want to breathe or not. You know, we, we, we might want to try to stop breathing for a little while, and like we realize that, wait a minute. So like, I mean, or, or just like a lot of the autonomic, um, the, um, what happens in our body, all our body, I mean, it's like we don't decide there are, there are organs work, that our, you know, biology works the way it, it does. It just does. It doesn't, you know, so, so, so again, like, so, you know, I think the problem is like, so people are just like grasping at a way to try to just like, you know, restore, maintain this, this idea of free will. And, and yeah, I mean, the, the clear, the clear um, point here is that um, what they're not getting is like that, yes, certainly what's not in our control in terms of sexuality or not, you know, being asexual, that obviously can't be freely willed. But what we say, you know, over and over in these episodes and what this whole de debate is about isn't even about that. It's about like these quote unquote choices that, that seem in, in a sense up to us. So again, like, I think the point here is that this, this trying to like, um, trying to use autonomic and, and quote unquote voluntary processes to, um, to present a case for free will is just like missing the entire, entire, um, you know, um, the entire point of, of the debate, you know, and the entire intent of it or, or you know, the, the substance. Yeah, I agree, George, because what they're missing is that, for example, some things are just automatic and our body does them, um, like the breathing thing or, and, the, and the desires, you know, that's just the way it is and there is no thought process. There's no process of deliberation um, that people even experience about those things. And for the other so-called decisions, well, there is a conscious process where the person is thinking about what they're going to do. And we already know that they're going to do whatever is the strongest desire, you know, and all the influences of their genetics and environment up to the present moment. So we know that um, they believe that it's undecided at that point, even though their subconscious has already um, computed the outcome and then they become aware of it. Agreed. So just to clear this up for any listeners who might have gotten a little bit sidetracked. What, what, what we're saying is that an asexual person does not have the typical sexual desire or has no sexual desire. Free will advocates, however, might argue that a celibate person is demonstrating free will because the celibate person wants to have sex, but somehow doesn't do it. So the celibate person is invoking free will by stopping himself or herself from doing what that person wants to do. But as, as Chandler, you know, um, so aptly described a little bit earlier, it's about competing urges, competing interests. Yes, the celibate person has sexual desire, but the celibate person also has other interests and desires that may conflict with that sexual desire. And there's no choice being made. These competing urges simply compete and one of them wins out. So if that person has the brain of a very logical person, perhaps that person decides it's illogical to have sex. And that logical foundation is so strong that it overcomes that urge to have sex. Yes. Right, and, and with this whole issue, so like, you know, I think, you know, there's different kinds of ways of understanding why we don't have a free will. And the competing motivations is certainly one of them. You know, there's different motivations within us 
you know, that might not be so easy for some people to understand because then, then they might say, well, wait a minute, we have two competing motivations within us, but aren't we like, don't we freely will what these motivations are? I don't know. <laughs> um, they might want to like bring it back a level. But I mean, like what, what's, what's the big mystery is that, um, you know, aside from the motivation, I mean, motivation is, is also a causal process. So basically what, what, what refutes free will is this simple process of causality. And this is our challenge. I mean, people, you know, even like PhDs don't understand causality. You know, a lot of them think they do. A lot of them really, they've, they've written books pr professing that they do. But like to, to believe that, that, that you understand causality and to argue for a free will really is to either, you know, completely mis misunderstand what this free will question is about or to completely to just not understand what causality is about. So maybe okay. Agreed. Yeah. It's, it's also a gross violation of Occam's razor. That's that's I think that's another big thing, because people, free will advocates, free will believers, they are adding something extra to what is known. They're adding an additional assumption to the universe. Like we see, you know, you know, we're very used to mechanical devices. We're used to the machines that we make, whether they're simple machines or complex machines. So we understand the mechanistic aspects of reality. We understand how dominoes works and how ticking clocks work. But the free will advocate says there is something extra and they have no proof for it. So, so, this, so this is another thing that, um, that, that needs to be addressed. It, there's a burden of proof. There's an onus on that person who is advocating for free will to demonstrate, first of all, to define what free will is somehow clearly, Secondly, to demonstrate what kind of evidence would be sufficient to show there is free will. And thirdly, to link it to the reality that we live in. I mean, it, without having satisfied these conditions, one must operate under the assumption that there is no free will, or the universe just works the way it does work due to, as you said, causality, cause and effect, just how every other mechanism that we understand works. Yeah, so Mitch, what you're saying is people are claiming there's a ghost in the machine, basically. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That, that, that's exactly it. But the, the thing is, what should the default stance be? By Occam's razor, we should be operating under the hypothesis with the fewest assumptions. So why by default? Because that's how most people approach the issue, right? Most, most people approach the issue. Um, when I say most people, I mean people who are open-minded but feel like uh, people who are not convinced that free will is bogus and feel like neuroscience or theoretical physics has to come up with evidence to demonstrate that free will does not exist. It's the other way around. The burden is on them to demonstrate it does exist. So I think this is a confusion of the issue, a confusion of the burden of proof. Who does it lie on? And I think it's just like, you know, we, we kind of like we go through life assuming that people are intelligent, that if you if you get a Ph.D., especially in psychology or philosophy, you know how to think, you know, and we can't you know, that's an assumption that, you know, that this this whole issue of free will just completely, you know, destroys. I mean, like, I think what's happening is like people have such a strong need to believe that they 
are in control of their actions. Otherwise, their life would be meaningless. I, this woman who comes to our Manhattan meetup, you know, she said, well, if, if, I, if, if I knew that, that I didn't have free will, I'd kill myself. I mean, like, so, so a lot of people have this very strong emotional need to believe in free will. And I think, you know, that's, you know, that's part of our challenge. In other words, like, if, if either, I mean, it, it's one of two things. One is that they, they either are just not, that intelligent because how could you not get that that causality makes free will impossible and how could you not get that if you try to challenge causality and you end up with well things not george just to be fair i I, I don't mean a country just i just want to make a small point just to be fair um it is i mean this issue right it used to be solely in the realm of academia. It was a scholarly issue. Like you said, there were philosophers and psychologists and great thinkers were the ones who thought about this issue. And it's only been, you know, very recently that's been in the zeitgeist where it's been popular for people like yourself and for Sam Harris and Richard Orton, other well, no, I don't agree with that because, like, I think, like, you know, like these late night college conversations, people go to school and college, you know, free will is like it's the most written about topic in philosophy. But yeah, yeah, but yeah. A but lot what, what I'm saying is, I don't think it's been very approachable until recently, just like how there's been this new atheism movement, right? There's been an, there's been atheistic movements since the beginning of human history, but there's been a new surge of energy. Thanks right, to I, the proliferation of information you know, through the internet and stuff. So I'm saying, in the case of free will, like for me, for example, I never really, before, you know, I never really investigated the issue of free will. I never invoked it. I didn't really have one. Uh, I didn't have a horse in the race. But I was able to digest the issue because a new wave of writers came along that took it out of the realm of academia. So I can see how it can be confusing because there are some people that I engage with, I have conversations with them about the issue, and I can tell after a few minutes they are not getting it, and this is the kind of person who is not going to be able to get it. They're just oh, not. But Mitch, in I think tune my my, that kind of my stronger point is that there are a lot of academians, there are a lot of PhDs who don't get this, who 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 you know who are familiar with the issue. Who, who know what the issue is about, who know, yeah. you know, what, what the players are and what the arguments are. And like, you know, again, there's, there's only two possibilities. One is like, all right, these, these people may know how to learn, but they certainly don't know how to think. And, and the second possibility is like, all right, they know how to think, but they're not the most ethical, moral people. Because basically, like to be a, a scientist, a philosopher, I think ethics compel you to be to be objective, to not impart your personal needs and desires and, you know, worldview into what you explore. And clearly, these people are opting to, to go with what they emotionally need, you know, to the extent they understand logically free will is impossible. And that's like so disingenuous. That's like, you know, that's, that's, it's just immoral. So like, you know, and, and that's a huge problem that, that we, you know, who are trying to like lead the world to this new consciousness face, we have to find a way to reach those people. Yeah. yeah. And Sorry. A, oh yeah, and a word about emotions is that, you know, there's some emotion behind everything, really. Like um sometimes, you know, people talk about the idea of, you know, being rational 
and leaving emotion out of the equation, but what kind of human is capable of doing such a thing? Is there well, any... Chandler, no, no, come on. I'm like, two plus two equals four. I mean, give me a break. That's not an emotional, that's a completely logical um, construction. You but like you saying? said, George, there's a series of, it's bias. It's human bias, of course. Like, take Daniel Dennett, for, some, for example. Daniel Dennett is a famous philosopher, one of the four horsemen, one of the linchpins of the new atheist movement. But he's also a renowned compatibilist. He has he's been entrenched in compatibilism. That's a thing he's written about for a long time. It's a big part of his career and his writings and what he does. When people talk to Daniel Dennett, they're either talking to him about atheism or compatibilism. Those are the two main things he's talking about. So imagine you know the embarrassment it would be for someone in that position, someone who is uh, otherwise very reasonable and very respected to have to admit I was completely wrong. One of the main things people have cited before I have is, is completely wrong. I've guided all these people in the complete wrong direction and I'm not as smart as I thought. You know what I mean? It's, it's hard to take. So I think part of the goal that, that we have, uh, if we can link this back to the uh, original topic for a second, because free will doesn't exist, we can't blame people. So our only, uh, option really if we want to make a change is to help people helping people is logical helping people see your side of the argument guiding people making them feel like they don't need to be ashamed about being wrong make them so for, for example my background is in mathematics In mathematics when you work on a problem you are wrong all the time you are constantly being wrong mathematicians talk to each other they go that's wrong that's right that's wrong that's right like sort of like the example you gave about two plus two being four or whatever. And we don't feel any way about it. There's no, you don't feel bad when you get it wrong. In fact, the fact that what you got was wrong is just as rewarding <laughs> as it being right. You know, so I think that's another goal that we, we should uh, aspire to achieve. We need to guide people and empower people, make them appreciate reason and compassion, show them, the world is, you know, get rid of these fatalistic thoughts and make it easier for them to absorb uh, the true nature uh, of reality. Yeah. And, you know, the thing is, like, it's true, you know, like George pointed out, you know, two, two plus two is four. And that's obviously true. But I think um, what we're getting at is that people don't have any emo an emotional need for two plus two to equal nine, as far as I know. I, at least I don't have that emotional need. You know, so I guess um, some perhaps there are some subjects we are able to just um, realize, well, this is the facts, but not but we don't have emotions that cloud it. But in other areas, like what Mitch pointed out about Dan Daniel Dennett, like if he's been writing books promoting this this compatibilism for all this time, well, it's, it's Yeah, it is a big blow to him to have to admit that he was wrong about something. But here's the deal. If he truly understands, if he, I mean, look, if he truly understands determinism, he would know that it wouldn't be his fault that he was wrong and he wouldn't feel bad about it. That's a good That's point, Chandler. Funny. That's a good point. So, like, you know, in other words, like this, this clouded reasoning that comes about from their emotionally, they, they have like, you know, I think Dennett has a very strong emotional need 
to believe we have a free will. I think he's one of these people that like, if we didn't have a free will, if we were just puppets, oh my God, life is meaningless. You know, so like, um, you're, you're right. So like, you know, so he can't really get to that point of accepting that we don't. I mean, he has actually, I mean, if you read some of his writings and, you know, listen to some of his debates, at point, at times, he is, he is kind of like moved by the, the other people, by Harris and all, to admit that we don't really have control over anything. But, but like, then like in the next line, but he'll still, he'll still say, but we have free will. It's a kind of like, you know, illogic that, that, that boggles the mind. And, and I think, you know, one, one avenue we may have is like, you know, these guys may need to choose between, you know, being right and being moral. If they, if they, if they value morality, they have to understand the, the disingenuousness of continuing to argue for something that you know is increasingly being understood um, contrary to to the position they're holding, and like it, it's an it's an it's an immoral uh, position that that they're you know, it, it's it's a matter of morality also. In other words, it's not just you know getting it right or wrong. Yeah, and guys, here's what's important is that I feel, the way I feel about this, knowing that there's no free will, I find that it's immoral to blame people for what isn't their fault. So because of that, and it helps keep me from blaming people when I meditate on this, realizing that nothing was up to anybody, um, then I, I find it almost immoral to just let people go on believing in free will because of all the blame and the shame that that does to people. Well, That's but Chandler, but, Chandler, but the, the, the free will belief causes so much harm. I mean, based on what you were just saying, if the entire world understood that we, nobody has a free will, it'd be pretty impossible for one person to become angry at another person. They might become angry at what happens, what a person, quote unquote, does, but they couldn't be angry at another person. So here's another thing we're, we're challenged with. You know, there's a lot of scientists, a lot of um, neuroscientists, especially now, who are getting that we don't have a free will. But, you know, there's levels of intelligence here. There's levels of understanding. So, like, they find, they get that, that we don't have free will. They are, like, really far from understanding the profound implications of this truth. You know, a lot of them like would say, "Fine, all right, we don't have free will, but it really doesn't mean anything." No, it could, you know, it couldn't be yeah. mean more to to the world. So I just wanted to make a, a quick point before I don't know how much more time we have for this uh, lecture. I just wanted to link it back to the original topic. So we started off talking about asexuality versus celibacy, and the point that I think we're all trying to make is that you want to honestly describe reality, and you need to understand. Uh, what, what, you need to investigate the deterministic nature of the universe to be able to accurately describe certain phenomena. So asexuality, celibacy, the definitions that Chandler uh, researched and found, they're off because they show a lack of understanding of free will. Another good example is um, the issue with gay rights. So people will say, well, Gay people don't choose to be gay. Well, there's a much stronger hammer blow you can use when you're a hard determinist. Gay people don't choose to be gay because no one chooses anything. You see, so, so but it's true. That's why it's not, it, it's there, there really isn't much of a difference between someone who is um, uh, engaged in 
homosexual sexual behavior and someone who says, well, I'm engaged in that behavior, but I don't feel this way, whatever. What you do is what you do. You are not in control of, of anything. So when you understand that, without that understanding, that's the real point, without that understanding, it's very difficult, perhaps impossible, to accurately define and describe some key uh, aspects of of uh, of our social network. It's very. I, I I don't see how one can really accurately talk about matters of politics and human well-being and science without an honest understanding of the way the universe works. Yes. Whether it's crime or addiction or overweightness or whatever, to the extent we hold a free will, we're just completely missing, you know, why we as people do what we do or not. Yeah, and it keeps us from looking into it as well because people just say, oh, well, this person chose their, their free will um, to do this or that. To, they chose to overeat. They chose to, to have sex um, before marriage. Therefore, we will blame them and punish them. But nobody ever looks to the causes because under free will, there is no causality. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, some of some people would claim there is, but yeah, I mean, it, 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 it's incoherent. Yeah, and there can't be randomness in free will either, making it even weirder. <laughs> Because <laughs> because it, it's supposed to be up to you, not random, uncaused events. Chandler, how are we on time? Yeah, well, we're almost at thirty minutes, so I better close this one, I guess. <laughs> okay, um, you've been listening to Free Will, Science, and Religion. This has been Chandler Klebs, Mitch Jade, and George Ortega. We we were talking about the definitions between you know a asexuality and celibacy and how the m making a distinction that celibacy was a choice whereas asexuality was not you know is a wrong it is it's it's not clear what that means and we, we're digging deep into the fact that nobody chooses anything that's what our podcast is about and i hope you've learned something from listening to this uh thank you for listening and goodbye <laughs>